Hi, everyone. Today, me and Tete are going to be talking about Scale, Blood and Bone, which is her tapest novel that you can read in her Instagram bio. So basically, as we talked about before, it's an alternative fantasy retelling of my graphic novel on tapas, The Book of Joel. And we're going to be exploring a little bit more about why, you know, Tete chose to write this based on The Book of Joel and what about The Book of Joel specifically inspired her to create this series. So Tete, I think it's because of Joel and Malka, right? The main couple of The Book of Joel? Yes, yes, it is. Um... Joel and Malka from the Book of Joel, they were very much the impetus, if you will, you know, for the creation of um, Scale, Blood and Bone, uh, just because seeing, you know, the richness of their, the formation of their relationship contains such a richness that I felt like, wow, how many AUs can you make out of this? Because I've always been fascinated by alternate universes. Mm -hmm. I've always been you know, fascinated by the idea of various incarnations in various settings and how people would change and alter. Would they really remain the same? Or would there be such a unique um, persistence, persistency of their spirit that there would always be this um, guiding core, if you will, like a lodestar, that they, they there would be some sort of similar quality that they would always have, that they would be themselves uh, regardless of an alternate universe and I thought more on it and it was at a time where I was uh, very disappointed with um, how how the fantasy genre is usually set up and I, I was feeling very let down and I wanted to still remain in a sort of a medieval fantasy it's always been my um, it's always been my favorite kind of zone so to speak and I've always loved the, the beauty of allegory and myth, um, but, you know, also, you know, um, historical accurate clothing as well. Um, so I just thought, well, I don't know, maybe I can think more on this. And like I said, I always loved tale and myth as well. And um, just seeing, I just began to imagine what would happen if, uh, you know, Joel and Malka were in an alternate fantasy universe and also, how would one allegorically translate Joel's inner complexes? Um, and I had thought of what would happen if, you know, he was a prince with a self-inflicted curse and he becomes, you know, a dragon and it kind of takes on a Beauty and the Beast kind of vibe, but it's, it's far more complicated because it's not reliant on the woman per se, but, you know, on the, on the person himself with the curse to, you know, kind of free himself. Uh, I mean, he does get, you know, support and inspiration, you know, from a friend, but, you know, it, 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 it really, at the end of the day, it relies within himself. Exactly, right, yes. And what exactly about Joel and Malka in the book of Joel really inspired you in particular? What about them, you know, really stuck out to your base, like compared to the other couples? Well, I think in comparison to other couples, I think there is just this naturalness um, to Joel and Malka, which isn't to say that the other couples aren't natural, but there's always a sense where with other couples or any couple is that they're always speaking to be a couple. And it's never like a confluence of friendship that just naturally unfolds. And then it sort of grows like a tree. You know, it starts off as a sapling. You're not sure what kind of tree it will be. And then as it grows, you realize what kind of tree it is. And what you thought was, I don't know, a persimmons tree turns out to be um, a, a lychee tree or a pear mm -hmm. tree. And um, I also, too, appreciated the fact that um, there was just um, there, there was no there was no ulterior motive whatsoever in any of their relationship in their relationship um, with Joel and Malka. And like I said, that's not to downplay any of the other couples, but, you know, I think with many couples in fiction, there tends to be sort of the thing where there's always an ulterior motive. It's not always a bad thing. It's just how human nature works. But with Joel and Malka, it's just a connection. It's, it's a confluence. It's an understanding. It's, um, it, it's just a beautiful melding, if you will, of just two people who just connect on that vibe like you know you're you're tuning a radio and you suddenly are writing the fm 
and these two radios get a great radio station. Right, that makes sense. So that's one of the reasons why um, it really stuck out to you, right? Like, for example, um, let's compare them to Andre and Katya, which is one of the, the couples that we always talked about before and is a crossover couple. Do you think there's an ulterior motive to them like, compared to Joe and Malka? I, not so much on Katya's part, but I think on Andre's part, I think with Andre, there's always an ulterior motive to when he um, pursues a woman, so to speak, or in, you know, wants to date a woman or courts a woman to put it in more gallant terms. Um, it, it's not a, it's not a malicious thing. It's just the thing of that Andre's very greedy for pleasure. He is a ruthless hedonist at heart. And when I say ruthless, I by no means mean violent, but it's just that he really wants pleasure and he will seek it and he will eagerly seek it and he will even rush into it because he craves, um, you know, the sensual satisfaction and pleasure of being with someone. And he doesn't think, oh, this person's qualities, do are they compatible with me? Is this, that, or the other thing? Andre thinks very shallow. Um, and, and, and it's not that he's old, like he only wants to be with pretty girls or he's only, you know, just being a Casanova. But, you know, I think for Andre's like, well, this girl's nice. Um, she seems OK with it. You know, let's rock and roll. And um, because he wants that pleasure and, and he likes the idea of, of warmth and love. But it, it's just a very temporary flash in the pan, unfortunately, for Andre. But he's willing to take that, um, that that greedy hedonistic pleasure. Um, but I think on Katya's part, I, I think she was aiming for something serious. Um, and, and maybe she's overwhelmed with Andre's passion because sometimes when Andre feels particularly attached to a person and he's like, uh-oh, we became friends, he tends to overwhelm them with his passions because it's like you just opened up a dam and here mm. comes the dam bursting in. So um, sometimes when Andre connects with someone, there's an ulterior motive with that because he kind of just wants to unload everything onto someone. And he doesn't mean to, it's just that he thinks that's the parameters of love and he's hoping that other people will unload on him. But I don't think Andre realizes that not, not a lot of people want to do that. I think some people want to be private and you know, just have their own sense of self, I think. That makes sense. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, Andre is sometimes a little bit too intense. He, he's far too intense. And I think this uh, frightens a lot of people. I think it upsets a lot of people. I think very few people can handle him. And it, it just makes it very tiring. It's very tiring to be in a relationship with Andre. Whereas Joel... I think Joel gives energy and I, I think he provides energy. I think he provides a lot of rest, comfort, um, as well as enlightenment and, you know, kind of a very tough, cynical approach to encouragement, which ironically actually works than rather the, the warm sentiments. True. I guess warm sentiments would be Sam, right? Sam was, you know, he's very syrupy. He's very saccharine and, um, I mean, it's all very wonderful and fine, but, you know, is there any real substantial solution? And I feel like Sam in the long run would probably provide a substantial solution, but it's just that Sam puts too much window dressing on everything. Right. And this is why you think that anything with him feels kind of fake, right? That's what makes it feel fake. Sam puts too much on it. He's way too extra. You know, he's, he has way too much... Yeah, I, you know, maybe this is a pervasive problem with fire signs, you know, and um, I mean, probably shouldn't say that, but, you know, I, I think it's just Sam's personality. He, he always needs to make things very extravagant, elaborate, and, uh, you know, basically he's like a ringmaster of a magnificent circus. Right. And I guess in that, in a way, that can be kind of tiring too, right? That can be tiring too, because sometimes you want the quiet, silent comfort, you know, sometimes you want, you know, to, you know, quote, Deepash Mode in the 80s, you know, just to enjoy the silence uh, with someone. And 
you know, in that silence, it speaks volumes because you're connecting with someone, but you don't need to verbally say anything. But I think with Sam, it's often a, you know, kind of a patter, 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 you know, rapid patter of words. Right, exactly. And then Andre, not a rapid patter of words, but something else. Andre is... I think Andre is a person of, you know, while he's not a real chatterbox, he does talk quite a bit. I think he's very intense with his emotions. Um, I think he is very much a bit of a, uh, he's a talkative romantic. I think he likes to talk about, you know, grandeur of passion and, um, you know, he's kind of very bold and daring with his declarations. And He's also opinionated. I mean, ask, don't don't get him started on society or politics or what he thinks about. So, I mean, even if you ask him, hey, Andre, do you like ketchup? You know, expect a five minute rant about, you know, why ketchup sucks and, you know, you should eat pickles or something. Oh, my God. And this is why we talked about how our most recent role play with Katya and Andre is actually not that accurate because you toned him down. The original one that we did back in 2017 was more accurate because he was more quarrelsome back then. I know. I mean, this the, the, the third one we did was way too wholesome. Andre was so um, out of character. I, I worried about him. I thought, oh, no, this isn't turning out all right. Um, ironically, that interaction with him and Ardayan worked out the best. Because he was, he so was being more fiery. He was fiery. He was going to throw Ardayan out the window. So that's very much in tune of Andre's uh, modus operandi for dealing with um, uh, dealing with the male peers is is uh, going rough and rumble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the first one is accurate. You know where he's kind of God bless him. He doesn't mean to scare her, but he's he's chasing down Katya at the kiosk at the park and she's yelling and screaming at him and you know he's yelling at her and there was a lot of yelling in that first rp which was very accurate <laughs> right oh gosh i'm so stupid i forgot to move the mic closer to me was was i really echoey no you weren't you were actually pretty clear okay so how does it sound now yeah you well you sound louder so that sounds better right but i hope it wasn't too bad before no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It actually just, it didn't sound bad at all, to be honest. Right. So it sounded like normal, but just a little bit softer, right? Yes, exactly. It was just softer, kind of like a, like medium volume on Discord or something. I see. And now it's like slightly louder. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, good. Okay. So yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And yeah, so I guess that's one of the reasons why Joel appeals more. And this is where you got your inspiration for Jules and Malka. Yes, exactly, exactly. I thought, you know, there's always these traits or these elements, components, if you will, throughout universal histories across cultures. Um, I don't want to call them Beauty and the Beast type of stories, but they are to a degree where you have sort of a difficulty in, in finding, you know, the, the um, full formation of someone's um, relationship or union. And, you know, sometimes it can be a barrier. And, and oftentimes it can be a barrier where the male or, you know, maybe let's just call it for sake of just non-gendering everything, the masculine force, if you will, um, you know, is often the barrier um, you know, to the happiness or formation of that union. Uh, and then you have on the other side, the female or the uh, feminine force, which seems to be more intuitive, more clear-sighted and more understanding, um, you know, wishes to fully go forward with the, you know, that union, but there's that barrier. And, and there's so many elements, there's so many stories. Um, in literature, in myth, um, fables, um, just, you know, just whatever have you. And, and there's always there's always this pervasive element. I felt like Joel and Malka had that uh, very beautifully, you know, poignant and touching element in them. And, you know, and, you know, I guess we could just, you know, for sake and purposes for people who may not 
maybe they'll maybe they'll recognize it, but I'll just call it a Beauty and the Beast kind of trope. Um, I don't want to use the word trope. I say I want to say element um, because trope implies something else. Um, but yes, um, and and I, I think that's also what inspired me too because the masculine force is preventing, you know, is is creating the barrier for that happy formation or the full formation of realization, while the um, feminine force is willing to move forward, but finds themselves unable to because they need the energy and, if you will, the, the force power drive of the masculine force. And like I said, you know, you could apply this to any gender or no genders if you want. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what I felt, uh, you know, to break it down to more bare, bare essentials of Joel and Malka. Right. And this wasn't something that you could find in my other couples, right? No, no, it wasn't because the other couples, there was always, there was always kind of a balance. There was never a, a conflict or a thing of self journey or exploration. Um, I feel like many of your couples kind of knew who they were and where they were, where they were and what they wanted. Um, Levin Rises sort of knew what they wanted. Um, they knew where they were headed. Um, I think Riza had different ideas than Lev, but she just went along with it because I, th I think she felt, well, you know, Lev knows what he's doing. So she goes with it. And Lev is very obstinate and, and he simply leads. I mean, he, he's, he, he's very much, you know, he just takes the reins. This is how Lev is. Um, I guess with other couples such as um, Sam and Lena, they both they both know who they are although i think lena's more assured of herself sam especially in finding sam is on a journey well to essentially find himself um but th they kind of know where they are with what they with what they need i think it's just they they just need to support one another and i think it's a thing of sam finding himself um but it's not that it's a barrier really to he and lena's relationship it's, it's just it, it's a barrier to himself. So mm -hmm. that I could say is not, does not fall into that universal element. That's true. Because Joel struggles with self-denial as we talked about. He very much does. He very much does. And, and you know, in many of these um, allegories of myths or even modern takes of, if you want to say Beauty and the Beast kind of stories, um, even if it's not say like, oh, a spell turned me into something. It, it, it could be a psychological thing, a man or masculine force struggling with um, an inner struggle of self-denial or, you know, questioning things and, and not wanting to accept that, you know, happiness can be found in taking a risk of that formation with the feminine force. That's true. Very true. You're right. I think Joel's the only one with this. I mean, Pinhas and Rachel, I don't think so. I think they're just both very cynical, right? They're both very cynical individuals. One is ruled by, one is governed um, by just, you know, fatalism. The other one is is kind of prodded by ambition and pride. So it's, it's, uh, it's a bad combo. <laughs> <laughs> True. How about the Dean and Doris? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Like, that's, I can't even call it a friendship because it's the most dry, dullest solid doji friendship i could think of I, I suppose it's charming i guess i can't even think of anything that is remotely fascinating this it's it's kind of dull i mean honestly i i think i think the dean probably has closer relationships with people he meets at the country club or something if the dean goes to a country club I think he does. Or even his students, right? I honestly think he likes his students a lot more. I mean, um, I don't know how to say it. Like, um, how do I say it? Like, you know, I, I think the Dean, there, there are some people, I think they're good at more of a teacher, mentor, quote unquote, parenting role than they are a lover. Um, I hate to say that because I'm making a comparison to another character we'll be talking about very shortly. 
but but this other character does not struggle like the dean no even though we thought he did for the longest time yeah i i was very defensive that he was not i i tried my hardest to say no he's not the dean and i was holding up a sign that said no dean you know like a circle with a line on it <laughs> <laughs> but i i kept on saying he was because we're gonna break it to you guys but it's the Frost Lord, but basically we've separated him from the supernatural elements. Yes, I've decided I'm just going to make the announcement, rip off the Band-Aid and make the announcement. Um, you guys may have remembered Gurdon, the Frost Lord. Well, that is something we have sort of shelved for the time being. And the Frost Lord, also known as Kai, is no longer the Frost Lord per se. He is an entirely new character now because originally back in 2013, when I envisioned both the Frost Lord and Kai, they were both separate characters. Kai was a human. The Frost Lord, although a former human, was very supernatural and, and very myth-like. Um, unfortunately, due to various circumstances and feeling um, struggling with a lot of insecure insecurities about would people ever read a natural history kind of thing I decided to cram Kai with the Frost Lord and it did not work because the Frost Lord was simply the Frost Lord and there was nothing of Kai left except Kai's complex ideals and tender love absolutely so there you have it people um Kai, Kai is his own self. He is a human. Um, his name is um, um, Kai Stian Halderson, and he's a dude from Norway. I don't know how many lives he's lived, but he's been in different times, whether it's the Dark Ages to modern Hell's Angels, and which, ironically, they do have in Norway. Who knew? Mm. Right. So we'll be talking more about this in the upcoming episodes as we brainstorm more about the series. Yes, yes, we will. So you'll be knowing more about uh, Kai Halderson, and hopefully, uh, hopefully he will he will uh, earn a way into your hearts like the other characters, um, such as Andre and the Frost Lord, have uh, earned their way into your hearts. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And what is the similarity between Joel and Kai? Very interesting. So I guess. To put it out there, I believe both of them, well, I guess uh, on a very basic level, both of them are, are water signs. Kai's uh, a Pisces, uh, Joel is Capricorn. Um, but I guess also too, both are men who have a very prickly exterior. You know, we have Joel's argumentative, argumentative nature um, verse, and cynicism. Uh, versus Kai's own cynicism, but Kai also has his own brand of cold sternness, um, which, you know, a lot of people find somewhat off-putting. And, and Kai also has a kind of candor about him that while it is kind of gentle, it, it's it's very sharp and bitter. So he's a very sharp, bitter type of person. Um, but like Joel, once you get to know Kai and you go through his 50 levels, you will find out that he's actually a very kind, caring, almost tender-hearted individual. And when they have found someone that they have found a confluence with, that they have they have uh, earned their trust and everything, and, and likewise they have earned his trust, they will open up. They will open up and show many different aspects that you would not think just on a basic level. Um, I think another similarity between Joel and Kai is their strong sense of responsibility, um, kind of a pervasive sense of self-denial, and I think just questioning things in a very existentialist, uh, very staunch existentialist manner. Um, and I think also as well as um, they're, they're kind of the I don't know what to call them. I want to call them the kings of prickliness or maybe maybe the kings of ice or something. Um, but but yes, um, once they bonded with someone and, and also to people they care about, they, they have a surprising, surprising caring nature. They just won't share it with anyone. It's like 
it's very, very, it's very, very exclusive. That makes sense. So it's not like Andre who shares everything with everyone. Andre shares everything with everyone, whether they want it or not. Like man drinking at table. Wow, I didn't need to hear your whole life story. And then Andre <laughs> has already told him his life story. And then he's like, I don't know, Andre's like crying and yelling and smashing his hand on the table. Typical. But this yeah. is how he makes so many friends and enemies too, right? Andre is very capable of making lots of friends, but also making lots of enemies. And he needs to keep them all in balance because he needs to have that on an equal scale because he can't have any, he cannot have more enemies than he has friends. I know. And he, he's very emotional. So sometimes he doesn't think about things. He just does it. He doesn't think about it. He just does it. Um, he's very uh, visceral, very volatile. I mean, like I said, he's standing out the windows, you know, screaming in the rain, Stella. And um, he, he that, that's Andre's modest operandi. Typical of him. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Um, meanwhile, Joel thinks things carefully. In fact, maybe Joel overthinks things in, in such a, tor- in almost a self-tormenting way. And he thinks about nine different ways this situation could go. That's and true. So, and Kai in many ways is like this too. Um, so there are these similarities between these two men. They they will look at a situation nine different ways and they're going to plan almost like a strategy before they enter in anything. That's true. Exactly. Or a strategy to self-sabotage in Joel's case. Very much. And I, I think to a degree, Kai also self-sabotages because... I think it's for different reasons. I think it's, um, you know, Joel's, I think, is to, you know, prove a point. But with Kai, it's not so much to prove a point, but rather, you know, to to avoid any problems. Because I think Kai is a person who, while he he's the sort of person, he likes instant confrontation. If he can shoot it down and nip it in the bud, he will. He won't let anything grow or develop. And I think that's to Kai's detriment. Mm-hmm. I see. By the way, you guys need to watch out on The Sims because I'm going to be releasing some screenshots that we took last month because um, we did make some Sims based on the new Gerda and Kai. Yes, I should also drop... Um, I guess now that we've announced that Kai is new, should we, should we announce that Gerda is also sort of new? Yes, we should. I think we should. So... Um, you know, you will still have fantasy Gerda, um, but it will be in a different context with the Frost Lord. But yes, um, Gerda was originally human. I hate to break it to you guys, she really was. And like Kai, she's a person uh, of Finnish origin um, who's been kind of bouncing back and forth between Finland and Norway, but mostly in Norway because of different situations and who knows how many lives she's lived, whether she's been a dark age shamanistic healer slash, you know, Cirrus, um, you know, to being, um, you know, a chemistry, chemistry student, unfortunately, turned unwilling uh, drug chem person who's trying to escape a biker gang. Uh, and this is why she and Kai meet in this in the modern times. But yeah, Gerda's been around just as long as Kai and I, I think they've been in multiple um, different situations together throughout time. So yes, this is uh, Gerda. Gerda is, is actually a, a human in this. Well, I mean, you know, more of a human. Mm-hmm, definitely. And the main AU you're focusing on right now is the one in the 19th century, correct? Yes, yes, it is. I did mention the Dark Ages one and I did mention the biker one. But we do have another one. It's in the 19th century. It takes place during the 1830s um, on, you know, sort of the on the fjords of Norway, if you will. And it deals with um, Kai and Gerda in a situation that would not be very alien to, you know, struggling people of their time. And this is going to focus on how they you know, get out of the pains and tribulations of their hardships and how they find a, you know, they form a beautiful friendship and find a confluence with one another. Absolutely. 
And how was this influenced by Joel and Malka? I think it was just because of the amazing chemistry and interaction, just this sense of understanding, this sense of, you know, you don't even have to talk that much. You can simply hold a person's hand and that in itself speaks volumes. You know, you're not, the silence is not so much silence, but it speaks volumes about, you know, what that single handhold can mean. Absolutely. I'm here for you. I care for you. I understand what you're going through. And and you just can look into someone's eyes and you can read all their thoughts instantly. Like just, you know, just download it instantly. Like, you know, before speed dial in 2000. Mm-hmm. Right. It's beautiful. It is, right. It is, yeah. And how, okay, back to the original topic of Jules and Malka. They were also <laughs> influenced by Joel and Malka in the same way that Gerda and Kai were. Um, what what are the main differences between Joel and Malka and Joel and Malka? I think the main differences, to put it, I think a lot of it is context and, and uh, some personality traits that are different. Um, for example, as we discussed in the earlier episode, Joel and Joel have different um, priorities, um, different ambitions. So I think it kind of it, it alters the way they approach relationships. Um, Joel, I think, goes through a more, I don't want to say radical transformation, but it's like his opinions and goals change um, in a more drastic fashion. Um, well, while Joel himself does change and he does become a new person, I feel like there's always, there's always going to be more elements of Joel that are more they're more solely defined like they're more etched in stone so to speak Mm -hmm. right and I think with Malka Malka in this alternate universe I think she's more I would like to say she's pretty much the same not much has altered from her um except that I think she's um I really can't think of what else has changed from her I think she's still understanding I think she's still intuitive um I think she still, you know, wants to care for everybody, but that exhausts her. Um, you know, she's still very selfless to a degree of that it's it's harmful to her, which is why she needs to learn how to be just a tad bit selfish and, you know, take her own agency of life. Um, but, um, but I think I think the AU Malka, I think she's more. I think she's willing to take. Um, maybe more risks, so to speak. I, I feel like Pan and Malk is maybe a little more afraid of risk and she needs Joel to encourage her to take more risk um, while, uh, you know, Malk and the alternate is more willing to take risks. So I guess the main differences are that, well, I guess also to background. Let's talk about background real quick. Um, Joel and Malka and Canon, they knew each other as kids, but they didn't really connect. Um, in the fantasy um, AU, Joel and Malka, Joel and Malka grew up together as children in the palace, and they were very close friends. In fact, many times, because of Joel's stutter, because he was very shy and introverted, and he struggled a lot with trying to connect with people. Sometimes his only friend growing up was Malka. That was, you know, his his only friend that really understood him. And, and, you know, she was patient with his stutter. She understood him. And, and, you know, sometimes she would kind of finish a sentence for him, not like to be rude or assumptive, but to help him out. And that would give him a lot of relief, you know, like, oh, she understands what I'm talking about. And um, I think that's what created this very, uh, you know, very beautiful background or foundation of their friendship. But, you know, a good thing is too, is that they go through a tumultuous period where, there's this separation of severance and, and they kind of grow on their own and then they come back and they, they realize that they still are compatible. They still, they actually find a deeper confluence than, you know, and, and it's always been there since they were kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And I think it's great that, you know, he had her to support him during all these years Definitely, definitely. And I I think it's also nice, too, that they got to enjoy kind of an innocent 
and as innocent, affectionate period as teens, you know, I, I think we always take that for granted, especially in this day and age. And it was nice they were able to enjoy that. And I think it just further proves, you know, the strength of their bond, you know, the strength of that, you know, I know I keep using the word confluence. Right, exactly. And, you know, canonically, unfortunately, they never really, really had that confluence when they were younger. No, no, they didn't. And, you know, that can be attributed to so many things, you know, modern separations, the crisis of modernity, or just the fact that Joel just didn't feel like connecting with her. Because, I mean, it wasn't like they grew up together in a palace or something, or, you know, Joel had other friends, Malka had other friends. So it wasn't like, you know, Joel, who was kind of like an isolated, depressed prince and you know, it, it's hard for him to go out and, you know, play with other kids or something, you know, so the only friend he's got to rely on is Malka, but Joel and Cannon, you know, he's a kid in the Lower East Side, you know, he, if he can survive, if he can roll with the punches, he can make some friends. Exactly. So yeah, it's a bit different. And I think also another thing that's kind of different is that Joel, I think, struggles with more self-denial and pride than Jules does, ironically, even though Jules is a prince. Yes, ironically, he does. It is kind of strange to see that, but, you know, he really does. I, I think, I think, Pat and Joel, I think he struggles, I think he struggles with a more stronger sense of self-denying and self-sabotaging than Jules does, because Jules just kind of lets it happen. I mean, it's only until he goes on a darker descent that he actually self-sabotages, but he does that out of concern for Malka. It, it's a bit like he realizes he's on a sinking lifeboat and he's sinking and he's just cutting the rope so Malka doesn't sink with him because they're tied together. Mm-hmm. And and that's the reason. But Joel and Malka, um, well, Joel, I think he self-sabotages like, like we discussed. It, it's because he needs, he wants to prove a point. And it's, it's all part of his own inner complexes of hubris, the fact that he would see it as pointless. While Jules himself does not, he doesn't see it as pointless per se, but he's scared of the path he's on. And he's thinking, there's no place for that on the path that I'm going on. I have to cut it off. And it, it, it benefits both ways, he thinks, Jules, because I'm protecting Malka so she doesn't get hurt by me. And I am empowering myself more so I can... I. I can't think about my own happiness. And, and besides, he's thinking, maybe Malka will find someone else, he's thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. So in a way, he's a little bit more conventional. Yes. In many ways, I think he is more conventional. I, I think uh, Ken and Joel, on the other hand, is very unconventional with his approach and what he's doing. That It's kind of scary, right? It, it is scary. I think it's more, uh, it's more dark. It's more... Uh, makes you think more it's sort of it's kind of like when you read like modern existentialism and, and you kind of close the book on that one chapter before you go to bed now you're thinking wow everything's worthless isn't it or why am i doing this um you know you get that feeling of dread i think mm-hmm. <laughs> right exactly it's yeah i think that was one of the problems is that i think joel just kind of spins around in his own head and sometimes it leads to some very strange conclusions i think it does i think it does it's yeah, there's nothing wrong with spinning around in your head or living in your head but you know the, the problem is you kind of become like a self-contained space unit and if you don't go outside and bring things from the forest you know you will stagnate and and maybe that's maybe that's a frightening reality that i think uh canon jewel addresses i think he i think he really does does it well mm-hmm. he does for sure he does and i think it's harder for him to break out of because it's not conventional it's more selfish as we talked about because jewel he wants to do this to protect malka right but joel yeah. he's just doing it to prove points and to prove society wrong that you don't need this you only need yourself because you can only rely on yourself exactly exactly so joel is more conventional you know he's more i'm gonna have to say he's not as hardcore as 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 joel is ironically despite going on 
a very dark path of very intense magic and dark stuff. Um, it, it's funny that all in, in all this darkness that Joel is actually more tenderhearted and conventional and I think maybe more, maybe simpler to a degree, um, simple in a, in a good way. But I think, Joel, yes. on, on the other hand, is just very, very complex. Like it's just, it's it's just such a roller coaster in his mental landscape. He is, and I think at the same time, do you think who's more intense? Intense in what? I guess intense in terms of emotion. Hmm. I want to say equally, but I don't know. Maybe maybe Joel is more fiery because I guess he feels more desperate because, you know, he has to become a king and he's dealing with all this magic and spells. And I guess that makes him more angry and more, you know, more more to lash out, I guess. True. I think he does have that anger to him that, you know, the other um, versions of him don't. Sorry, I mean, you know, Joel doesn't. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I, do, I don't think... I don't think Canon Joel has a lot of anger. I think he has a lot of cynicism and, you know, resentment. But it, it's not the full-blown indignant anger like like Joel would have because there's many things that happen to him and many things that happen to people that he loves. Um, as well as being angry with himself and, and you know, kind of being angry with um, you know, dark magic itself, because he he kind of had um, expectations, you know, on how to control that kind of magic, but he realized sometimes magic cannot be controlled. What what do you think is the anal anal analogy of that in the canon version? Is there something about Joel himself that he fears he can't control? I I I I had thought of that. That's what made me go towards that. And I think it's I think it's Joel Canon Joel's hubris. Joel will always crave that hubris. I think even even with his healthy loving relationship with Malka, there's always going to be that little warning um, of that hubris. There's always going to be that little weeding sprout of his hubris, and that's always going to be a danger he needs to look out for. It's a bit like, say you have a tree. If you have a vine wrapping around a tree, it will sap all of its energy and wholesome green energy. Um, so I think with Joel, his vine is his hubris. And he, like the tree, needs to make sure that vine is being cut down and it doesn't overwhelm him because then it will drown out all his good qualities. Mm hmm and I mean, that's, that's how I feel um, is, is the analogy. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, allegorical analogy, if you will, Joel's hubris and his own need to prove something right, justification, vindication, if you will, let's just say hubris and vindication are probably mm -hmm. an analogy for Joel's descent to uh, dark magic because it kind of comes from a diff a same place you know Joel wants to prove that he is capable of being king and that he can be just as great as his mother if not greater um and you know I, I think it's also his own sense of pride like yes I'm so smart I don't need you know bodily strength or whatever or you know charming charm um, you know, to get all this power, I have my brain. So I think, I think Joel has a lot of hubris with his mind. Right. And what is Joel, where, where does his hubris come from? Is it for, is it about his mind as well? Or is it about something about going against the grain? I think it's his mind, but I think it's also his uh, determination to be so hardcore about his, uh, his convictions, I think. And he's like, well, I'm proving a point. I'm willing to go all thousand percent hardcore, throw the you know bath water out with the baby. And he's like, are you, can you do it? And then I guess he feels like there's this smirk of hubris that, you know, kind of simmers within him in a, in a, in a kind of a triumphant way because he knows a lot of people are not going to be as hardcore as he is. True. So it's less about intellect, right? It's less about intellect. You know, I think it's more about conviction. Um, so it's not like Joel, because Joel has a lot of insecurity. So he's like, well, I don't got nothing, but at least I got my, um, intellect and I will use magic to 
better myself. And as you'll see in later chapters, he does, but it's at a very grave cost. Right. And another thing is that I think Jules, he doesn't, he doesn't think that love is pointless, right? Like he just wants to protect Malka. So that already kind of proves the point of that. He doesn't think that love is pointless, but Joel always says he, he doesn't think love is worth pursuing. And he, he would like to protect Malka and the other people close to him and the people he values, but that's because he wants to do his job as a good citizen. That's true. So this differs from Joel. Like you said, um, Joel, he doesn't think love is pointless. Um, he thinks a lot of people can enjoy it and should enjoy it. But, you know, he thinks for himself, his own personal path, he cannot have that exist with him. And, you know, had he been different, had he been a commoner, even, um, and Malka would have been a commoner. You know, I think he would have pursued full happiness with her, you know, kind of a calm domestic life, if you will, maybe a, um, a happy little shopkeeper in the city or something. But no, instead he has this this grand, grand thing, which is just crushing him because in many ways he feels the only way to be a king is is to almost become a god in a way. And he feels he, he cannot have Malta with him on that journey. It's too overwhelming for her. It's like a, this crushing force and, you know, you almost have to dehumanize yourself both literally and figuratively speaking in order to assume that. And he's doing this to protect her. He's doing it really out of love because if he was selfish, he would just drag her along for his own emotional satisfaction and not care how much it would hurt her or even damage her or even scary enough, you know, maybe the, maybe the magic would, you know, make her sick or kill her or something. That makes sense. How about Joel and Malka? Do you think he ever thinks about how his self-denial affects Malka? Because this is something, you know, a lot of your characters have asked him and he never really gave a satisfactory answer, did he? No, he didn't. I, I, ironically, it was uh, Tamara that really finally got the, the conclusion done. Tamara, of all people, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, I I think I think I always feel that's a problem. Not a problem, but like I feel like that's an element um, that arises that I don't think he realizes. You know, a lot of people don't realize that when you self deny yourself with other people, you may think you're protecting them, and to some degree you are, but it does hurt. It does hurt other people, especially when you don't communicate why you're doing it. And I think that's why a lot of my characters were stressing clear communication. They're like, well, yeah, go ahead and do this thing if you want to, because if you want to go down this path, but make sure you communicate to Malka what's going on, because she may be getting a mixed signal and you're giving her a very different signal. And, and that's going to make her sad. That's going to hurt her. She's going to think, is the problem me? Does he like, does he not like me because I'm what, too shy, too wishy-washy? too much of a crybaby? Do I serve people too much? You know, is he so proud and arrogant and just have his own agency and sense of self that he thinks of me as this dweeby little thing? And, um, you know, that's why Joel needs to communicate that clearly with her. This is why all my characters are urgently, you know, uh, urging communication, even Andre, who's, a, you know, not the best communicator, well, kind of a good communicator when, until it gets emotional. That's true. That's a very good point. Yeah. So, so what do you think really hurts Malka the most about Joel's self-denial? Like the, the it, does, it makes her, you know, question herself and doubt herself. And, you know, at the same time, what else d does it really impact? I think it also impacts what the relationship means. Like, why are they together? Like, if he thinks this of me, why are we together? Why doesn't he go pursue something else? Or is he just, you know, using me as one of his thought experiments or to see how this plays along? Or if he just needs me as, I don't know, just something to entertain him. And I think that makes her kind of resentful and, and question it. And you know, that's not the case, but you know, Joel, you better communicate it instead of, you know, just being tight lipped in your pride, like a angry little oyster embedded in the sand is, is how I'm feeling. And I think a lot of characters feel. That's true. Yeah. I think that's a problem that he had, he didn't even realize. And that's the sad thing. He didn't realize it. Like when all my other characters were asking him, 
he didn't realize it. Like, especially when Tamara drops that bombshell, um, he got so angry with himself. Like, I mean, he was even cussing a bit, you know? Mm-hmm, exactly. I think that's the sad thing. I think he just thinks that, you know, it's a harmless thing and he thinks it's better. He thinks it's actually benefiting everyone because he is an awkward person. If he was more like Andre, he would hurt a lot of people. That's what he thinks. And he wants to hold himself back to prevent himself from being like Andre or Frankie or Sam. Cause he thinks that if he's just totally uncontrolled, he's going to probably end up offending and hurting a lot of people. So it's better for him to lock himself away. And, and, you know, and logically speaking, that would work, you know, that would work, you know, in a logical idyllic world, but unfortunately it, it does not. And, I mean, it does to a degree, but then, like I said, the other aspect, the other side of the coin, if you will, is that it will hurt other people and it will hurt someone like Malka just for the very reasons I explored. And by not communicating, you know, by not saying, well, this is why I act like this. It's not because of you. It's because of me. It's a me problem. Um, he needs to make that very clear to Malka or she's going to think it's all on her. And that's actually going to hurt her maybe more than if he were to offend her. I mean, honestly, when someone like Andre goes around offending and doing stupid shit, um, people will forget that. You know, it'll be like next week. Like, oh, I forgot all about that. Oh, that was funny. You know, he threw a beer bottle or, you know, said someone was ugly or something. But, you know, Andre didn't mean it. He's just being a loudmouth. But when you do something like Joel and, and you're doing these kind of silent and subtle machinations, if you will, those things stay with you forever because you'll never have closure or find the answer. And you'll always be asking and it, it'll leave a it'll leave a wound that'll leave a scar, I think, especially with someone like Malka. Mm-hmm. And he didn't realize it. And that's the saddest thing is that he did not realize that. And you know, maybe this is something good too for Malka to communicate that, that she does not like this and it's hurting her. Um, and, 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 you know, hopefully she does, you know, communicate that and, and maybe Joel will finally realize it and he will tell her he didn't mean it. And I think once someone tells you they didn't mean it, the pain is gradually ameliorated and then you don't think of it no longer because you realize they were trying to help you not hurt you and, and then i think the hurt because it was not from a police mouse tends to heal a lot better and, and maybe not hopefully leave a scar right exactly exactly so i think like i said joel there's always this it's a bit like you have a tide and it's going to creep into your beach house I think Joel always has to keep an eye on that tie that that does not creep in, you know, if he ever does that, like, you know, the ability to hurt someone with that, with what we just explained. Exactly. So it's another thing. And I guess another thing that kind of differentiates Joel from Joel is the, is Joel's extreme obsession with not letting himself enjoy anything sexual. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Joel, on the other hand, while he doesn't do it until much later, um, he's very open to, you know, the gradual development of physical affection. He he likes to hold Malka's hand. He he likes to, you know, really, you know, lock eyes with her. And you know, sometimes, as he you know grows more into teen and manhood. You know, he likes other signs of affection as well, you know, that he can give, but also receive from her. Um, so very, very, I think, I think that's different than, uh, than Joel in many respects. Mm-hmm. I think Joel, he wants to fight his own impulses and his own desires because he thinks, first of all, he won't get any happiness from it. And second of all, he wants to prove a point, right? That he's right, that it was pointless after all. Exactly. He wants to prove a point that it was it was pointless after all. Um, in some ways, I mean, sometimes the more I think about it, the more Joel is kind of like kind of a scary Twilight character, Twilight Zone character, you know, with that kind of goal in mind. 
I don't know what the Twilight Zone is. I keep on seeing it on the internet, but what is it? Is it a television show? Okay, so the Twilight the Twilight Zone was a retro sci-fi show in the 50s that wasn't really sci-fi. It was more like about thought experimental stories. They kind of dealt with things like existentialism, cynicism in society, the ideas of loneliness, facing death, or being challenged by your... Um, you know, conventional views. And a lot of people noted it had a bizarre, eerie sense to it. But some episodes were, you know, while they could be very brutal, um, some of them had a beautiful poignancy. Um, there are two that stick out in mind real quick. One was about a man. He kind of hated his life. He hated everything about his life, his marriage, his job. All he wanted to do was read in peace. Um, there is a um, nucle nuclear radiation fallout that happens. Now, you have to remember this is in the 50s. Everyone's scared of nukes and fallout thing was going on. So it was kind of re relevant at the time. So anyway, he, he emerges out of the shelter and he realizes the whole world is empty. He's the only man left alive. And he's kind of happy. And he's like, I can finally read my books in peace. But then what happens is um, his glasses break and he can no longer read because he, he's nearsighted. And that's kind of the ultimate tragedy that this is a man who, you know, allowed everything to make him so bitter that this was the only thing that gave him any purpose or meaning or joy in life. And now that's the only thing he has and he cannot even enjoy it. So it's, it's kind of tantalizing in a way. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And, and then I guess the next episode, not really relevant to this, but more relevant to what I was dealing with, with themes of death. Um, an old woman is scared of being taken by the Grim Reaper. So she's always hiding in insulation. She never got married. She never tried to go. She just kept herself locked up in her house and would only go out at night to get groceries. Well, um, she, she goes out one night and she finds this injured young man. She takes him in, takes care of him out of, you know, kind of a consciousness moral obligation thing. And they start talking about things, you know, you know, life and what it means to be alive and what is death. And in the end, she realizes this handsome, charming, sweet man is the Grim Reaper himself. And she realizes she's no longer afraid because, you know, it, it's one of those things, you know, maybe maybe death has something new and now she's learned something valuable. So she's ready to go into the afterlife. I see. So, yeah, Twilight Zone had a lot of good things, um, a lot of good shows. Um a lot of good episodes that made you question things. And, you know, I, I think that's, you know, maybe the goal of a lot of psychological sci-fi or speculative fiction, you know, to do that. And and I wouldn't even call it sci-fi because so many of these were in a natural setting. They weren't even like, in, there were no space or anything. Mm, I see. Yeah. But I just thought those were relevant um, just because, just because people being controlled by their complexes and their desires and hubris like people wanting to prove a point so bad or not let go of their pride and ego that it led to their self-destruction that's true yeah i think joel would be like that woman wouldn't he i think he would i mean made for different reasons obviously um I don't think he's like the man with the books, though. I, I hope not. <laughs> I don't think he's like the man with the books. He's more like the woman. I think he's more like the woman. Um, that's actually a very good... If you can... Uh, I'll try to find hunt down that episode and give it to you, and, and maybe, maybe you'll find some inspiration in that episode. <laughs> yeah, because I think one interesting thing is that, remember, he was telling many of your characters that, you know one of our mm -hmm. private RPs that he thinks that the one of the reasons why he denies himself is because he wants to live minimalistically. Exactly. He wants to live minimalistically. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, Joel went really extreme with that. Like I thought, well, golly, hardcore there, Joel, you know, I, uh, you know, don't, you know, how do I say, don't, don't etch your gravestone with the year you're going to die, you know, figuratively, like we say in Spanish, you know. Right. And what he wants to do, why is he, why is he so focused on particular in suppressing his sexual urges is because I think um, 
And this is where he kind of differs from some of the other characters, like the Dean, for example. He has very strong sexual feelings. That's true. That's true. He does. I think he kind of fears himself in a way. Unlike Andre, who's like, oh, that's great. You know? <laughs> exactly. And he, I guess in a way, he doesn't want to become like Andre. He sees people like Andre as being controlled by their urges, and he doesn't want to be like that. Exactly. Joel wants the opposite. He wants to be the one that controls his urges, not the other way around. Exactly. Right. And I guess Sam would just say, that's why you're a freak. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for your insight. Because <laughs> Sam would say, I would embrace it. Yeah, hell yeah. And he would say, I would make some kind of wink, wink special films. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know what Sam would make? And Honestly, if he offered Andre money, Andre would be his his leading star. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Frankie, too. Don't forget all three of them. <laughs> all three of them. Yeah. So so um, uh, Sam's going to make these movies. Frankie and Andre, um, they're going to be to Sam what Johnny Depp is to uh, Tim Burton. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's the main reason Joel wants to deny himself. It's because of his fear of becoming controlled by his desires like Andre. And he realizes that Andre is happy with it, so he's okay with that. And this is why he's friends with him. But he would not be okay being like Andre, being controlled by his desires. That's the problem. That, that is the problem. I, I think that's what scares him, is, is being controlled by that, because he would not find happiness. He may find a lot of... Um, you know, just kind of a lot of um, dissatisfaction. I think a lot of, you know, anger and depression over it, you know, having, you know, let himself, you know, go like that. Um, it kind of reminds me of this film. I forget what it was called, but it, it dealt with someone regretting their frenzied passions. I know it was, I think it was a Japanese film. I know because Toshiro Mufune was in it, but I forget the name of the film, mm, but it was, a, it was a modern, it was, it was not, it was not the usual, you know, samurai stuff, which, you know, is all right. But I mean, I've always liked the more, you know, noir type of thing. Mm, I see. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that's the main thing. And Joel really scares, is really scared of that potential future. And this is why he fights so hard against it. Exactly, exactly. So, and, you know, one would argue this is fine. You know, some people want to do that. And that's okie doke. It's just Joel's, you know, just wanting to prove it right. Just wanting to prove it right. And I mean, even willing to like cut the cables, if you will, holding together the idea of happiness with someone because he's like no no i want to prove that i was right all along and exactly. i think that's what makes him kind of scary in a way it kind of makes him very um surprisingly dark in a way even though he doesn't do any dark things yeah he's not out there doing you know dark crazy magic he's not turning himself into you know a dragon-like entity if you will and you know, getting involved in like, you know, crazy dark alchemy magic. No, he's not. But I think he's scared, first of all, that, you know, he's going to spend a lot of, you know, money on women. I mean, if he gets addicted, if he does it once, he's going to get addicted and then he's going to spend all his money on women, kind of like, you know, how Isaac, um, who is Malka's father, and I guess Andre kind of does too. Yeah, Andre does. Um, I guess it depends on what kind of woman. Um, he feel. I mean, here's the thing. If a woman's more gentle and she needs to be, you know, molly cuddled by gifts, Andre will do it. But for someone like Tamara, Andre's like, Tamara doesn't want any gifts because he knows Tamara doesn't want any gifts. Tamara wants emotional connection and Andre can provide that. He's like, yeah, great, great sex, but emotional connection first and Andre's okay with that because he can emotionally connect and I, I guess that's what makes Tamara a little bit different like I said he'll always have many lovers but there will only be one Tamara in his life right and how about Joel and Malka they will always have each other for only one another I do not think Joel could be with anybody else but Malka and vice versa that doesn't sound cheesy it's just that 
it's like it's a bit like how I see Gerda and Kai. There's just this strong, strong confluence that no one else can share because it is a very, very unique thing that seldom happens. It, it happens like if I were to, I don't know, launch a bullet into the moon, you know, would I hit it right into the, you know, right into a very specific crater with coordinates? What are the chances mm-hmm. of that? Exactly. Know? Right. So even though Joel's afraid of, you know, his own sexual proclivities, um, I don't think he actually feels that attracted to other women, does he? I don't think he does. I mean, I think, you know, maybe on a superficial level, he'll be like, oh, this woman's beautiful or this woman is sexy or whatever. But I think what ultimately attracts him to um, Malka are her qualities and the fact that they just bond and 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 you know that's what inspired for Gerda and Kai because that's how it's always been with them it's always been that quality it's always been that those unique qualities but also as an individual they just vibe they just you know Joel and Malka Kai and Gerda they just vibe Mm-hmm, they do and we're going to be talking more about Gerda and Kai in the future episodes as well as more about Jules and Malka as the series progresses yes yes we are we're going to be exploring that more there's so much to uncover I mean it's an inexhaustible depth of just exploring so much not only about human nature but how relationships form and you know maybe as we as a society maybe it forces us to reevaluate what is valued and you know what what makes us individuals and what what also brings happiness as well absolutely so thank you so much for coming on and you know we can't wait to have you on the next episode and talk more about Gurn and Kai Joel and Malka and Joel and Malka absolutely I cannot wait for the next episode I am just eager and raring to go all right thank you goodbye thank, thank you goodbye